Now, it is no secret at all that prior to Paul's conversion, he was no friend to the church. In fact, he hated the church and he hated her Lord, Jesus Christ. And his hatred was so strong that only an act of God could transform Paul from an enemy of Jesus into the most influential follower of Jesus the world has ever known. And that's exactly what Paul says happened to him. He says as much in verse 1. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul did not will himself into God's kingdom, much less into becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ. Only God could do that. And the passage we read from Acts chapter 9, it demonstrates this fact. Now Paul is first introduced as Saul in Acts chapter 7 where Luke says in verse 58 of chapter 7 that while the people were stoning Stephen, the the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed committed them to prison. Saul was complicit in the death of Jesus Christ. He nodded in approval when they were stoning this young man to death. And he turned up the heat on the church in Jerusalem. He went after them. He dragged men and women out of their homes and threw them in prison. And in a sadly ironic way, Saul, now Paul, wrote this letter to the Colossian churches from prison. In fact, many of his letters were written from one prison or another. This one was most likely written when Paul was in prison in Ephesus in the early 50s, that is, A.D. 50s, not 1950s. Although it might seem to some of you, some of the youth in our church, about the same, either way. The same tactics he had used and perhaps perfected against Christians were later used against him. And the Lord says as much to Ananias, I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this letter to a group of Christians he has never met who live in a a city, Colossae, 120 miles east of Ephesus in what is now Turkey. And he writes as one who, when he was a young man, had sent men and women to prisons similar to the one in which he now sat. It's no small wonder then that he once again acknowledges the fact that he who had dragged Christians off to jail had himself been dragged by the sovereign grace of Almighty God to believing in the one he had hated above all others, Jesus Christ. And so as we work our way through the sermon this morning, I would ask you to keep this thought, to hold this thought in front of you. The sovereign grace that called Paul to be an apostle is the same sovereign grace that called you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. The sovereign grace that called Paul to be an apostle is the same sovereign grace that called you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The sermon has three parts. The first, by the will of God. The second, to the saints. And the third, grace and peace. Again, by the will of God, to the saints, grace and peace. Those are three points of the sermon. And so let's jump into the first point, by the will of God. We've touched on this already, but just to reiterate, Paul's conversion was miraculous in the truest sense of the word. And the transformation that took place in his life was astonishing. It was was black and white, night and day the differences between uh, Paul prior to his conversion and Paul after his conversion. 
At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Paul is departing Jerusalem for Damascus for the purpose of seeking out more followers of Jesus, any belonging to the way, so that he could capture them and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. He's been given letters by the high priests in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, to go to the synagogues, to gain access to those synagogues, and to bring the Christians out back to Jerusalem, the seat of Judaism, so that they would be punished for their deviation from the faith. Well, Paul ends up in the synagogues in Damascus, doesn't he? But when he gets there, he's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the one he hated. We all know that God had other plans on the road to Damascus. He didn't find people belonging to the way, Paul didn't. He found the way because the way uh, on the way to Damascus, the way found him. As he approached Damascus, a light from heaven shone around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I've pointed this out before, but I think we need to be reminded of this. Who had Saul been persecuting? Jesus was ascended into heaven. Saul was persecuting the church. He was persecuting Christians like you and me. But Jesus takes that very personally. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul is understandably astonished he doesn't know what's going on he asks who are you lord and jesus says i am jesus who you are persecuting the lord had sought out saul on the road to damascus and he changed his life and he changed the course of history through the conversion of this persecutor of the church incidentally this is sort of an aside but you probably notice i'm using saul and paul interchangeably at this point Because I'm convinced, and and maybe you're not, and that's fine if you don't agree with me on this, but I'm convinced that Saul's name was not changed to Paul, as many believe, after his uh, conversion. I'm convinced that Paul had two names. Saul, his, his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, and Paul, his Latin name. He was both a Jew and a Roman citizen. And it was fairly common among that day for, for Jewish citizens of Rome to have a Hebrew name, to have a Roman name. And in Paul's case, they just had a nice rhyming sound with one another. There's no mention of his name being changed, only that Saul was also called Paul. And from that point in chapter 13, verse 9 of Acts, from that point on, Luke only refers to him as Paul. Going back to Acts chapter 9, Saul is blinded by his encounter with Jesus, and for three days he was without sight. He stays at the home of Judas in Damascus. And during that time, the Lord gave Ananias a vision in which he told him to go and find Saul of Tarsus and to lay hands on him to restore his sight. But what was Ananias' reaction? Understandably, Ananias was, was very concerned. Whoa, wait a minute. Lord, what are you telling me to do? This man, Saul, he is a persecutor of the church. He hates the church. If I go to him, he's going to tear me to shreds. But the Lord told Ananias in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul is the instrument God chose to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, and he understood this. He understood his calling. He held it before himself every day. He knew what his purpose was to be about. He is, as he writes in verse 1 of our passage in Colossians 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 
As one author puts it, he was secure in God's calling, knowing himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, recognizing that he was a servant together with other gospel laborers, but also made meek as one who had received a particular mercy. Now, one thing that's often said of those of us who believe in God sovereignly ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, including salvation for particular people, one thing that's often said of us is that it makes us smug, it makes us condescending, it makes us arrogant. We're often referred to as the frozen chosen. And it's not without warrant, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we forget just who we were without Christ. And it comes across in a particular way to those who don't agree with uh, the doctrines of grace in the way that we do. But this certainly wasn't the case for Paul. And so it's not inevitable for anyone else who, like Paul, believes that God elects some to salvation. The reality is that, that human beings are prideful creatures. It's not Calvinism or any other type of theology that makes us proud. It's sin that makes us proud. The doctrines of grace, another way of referring to Calvinism, ought to encourage us toward humility, not pride. And so let us follow here the example of Paul, who never forgot, who never forgot that from which he was saved. In his greeting to the Colossian church, Paul also includes his son in the faith, Timothy. In most of Paul's letters, he includes Timothy in the greeting. Timothy uh, probably was, was Paul's secretary for many of his letters. The Apostle Paul almost always has Pastor Timothy with him, co-laboring alongside him in the fields of the harvest. Timothy's like a son to Paul. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Now, Timothy wasn't converted under the ministry of Paul. He was born into a household of faith. Both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were Christians. The Lord was already at work in Timothy's life before Paul arrived at Derb and Lystra, where Timothy and his family lived. And so Timothy was somewhat like the church at Colossae, in that Paul wasn't involved in his conversion or, or the creation of the Colossian church, but Paul was very much involved in Timothy's spiritual formation, in his growth and maturity as a Christian. And Paul, by writing this letter to this Colossian church, is involving himself in their spiritual formation. Just as he did with Timothy, so he is seeking to do with the Colossians. He wants them to grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Well, that brings us to the second point of the sermon, to the saints. In verse 2, Paul writes to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He says in verses 3 and 4, we'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Though Paul had been preaching the gospel throughout the eastern Mediterranean for perhaps 15 to 20 years by this time, he had not had a direct hand at planting the Colossian church. He heard about their faith in Christ sometime after they had gotten started, sometime after the church had been planted. He, he gets a report about this church in Colossae. Now, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, a, a couple of things, I guess. I want to encourage you, number one, to take vacations. You don't do it enough. <laughs> Take a vacation every once in a while. Take a break. Get rest. It's 
one of the things I've noticed being down here in Texas after coming down from uh, the Philadelphia area, growing up in North Carolina, Texas, you don't, you don't rest enough. You don't break from your labors enough. You just keep going and going and going. Take vacations. And when you're on vacation, here's the second piece of advice I'm going to give you. Worship in a church where the Bible is proclaimed, the gospel is preached. It doesn't have to be an OP church. It doesn't have to be a Napark church. Just a faithful church of Jesus Christ where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and you are meeting with brothers and sisters. Why do I say that you ought to do this? Well, some of you do. Some of you make it a habit whenever you're traveling. You seek out a church and you go and worship there. And you know this from your own experience if you've done it, that it is a huge encouragement to go somewhere else hundreds, thousands of miles away, meet up with brothers and sisters who, in, in, in the, in the, to the largest degree possible, they, are, they agree with you in the faith. They understand what you understand. They believe what you believe. It's, it's vastly encouraging. Why? Because it lets you know this is the universal truth. This is what Christians in, in, in various places around the world believe and what they believe from the beginning. It's a huge encouragement to you. So let it be encouraged. Don't let it be a burden when I say take a vacation. Let it be an encouragement. It's comforting. It's reassuring to find the faith that was handed down to you, that it's also been faithfully handed down to other Christians that you don't know. And it also teaches you in a concrete way that the church is one. The church is united. We're not a bunch of different, separate, completely uh, uh, isolated congregations from, from one another. Now, Paul has had a somewhat similar experience with the Colossian church. He's heard about the faith, and he's delighted in their faith. The Colossian church, getting started without any help from Paul, shows him that God is the one doing the work, and that he has other instruments besides Paul to do that work. And so rather than this being a discouragement, to Paul, he is thankful to God. He doesn't see it as some sort of bad type of competition. He doesn't look at it that way. He is delighted that these brothers and sisters are coming up in the faith. And he calls the Colossian Christians saints and faithful brothers in Christ. I just want to point this out. Brothers in verse 2, it is an inclusive term referring not only to men, but to the entire church, to brothers and sisters. It's kind of like the generic he that was common in common usage in English up until 15 or 20 years ago. The, the use of he to refer to both males and females, it dates back at least to the 1700s. When Suzanne Wagner writes, there was rather an extended period of time in the history of the English language when the choice of a supposedly masculine per personal pronoun, him, said nothing about the gender or sex of the referent. But I think even more analogous for Paul than the use of the generic he in English is the account of Genesis 1 of God's creation of humanity. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is not fully, truly mankind without male and female. And the same could be said of the church, that it isn't fully the church without brothers and sisters in the church. But Paul also refers to the Christians at Colossae as saints. Saint is the descriptor of every Christian. Everyone who has found new life and true freedom in Christ is 
a saint. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, it does not refer to only certain outstanding Christians whom the church recognizes in a special way by canonizing them. That's, that's what the Catholic Church does. They, they canonize saints after their death. And usually in order to be canonized as a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to have performed some kind of miracle that was witnessed by people. And miracles have to be performed after your death in your name or by, I don't know how it works, to be honest. It's not nearly that complicated. Believe in Jesus Christ and you're a saint. That's what Ferguson continues on saying. He says, no, all Christians have had their old life cut off, the root meaning of Paul's word, and are now distanced distanced or set apart from their former lifestyle. The word translated saints, it literally means the holy ones. And everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is called a saint. If Paul were alive today, he might write a letter to all the saints at Mid-Cities Presbyterian Church. Referring to everyone who's a member here. You are holy. You are set apart. Because by believing in Jesus Christ, you have been washed clean of your sins by the blood of Christ shed for you on the cross. Holy is what you are called. But holy is also what you are called to be. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 1, he greets them by saying, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And then he says this in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Saints, be saints. That's what Paul is saying. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been set apart from the rest of the world. But we're also commanded not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12 too. So you are set apart. You are, you are saints, and yet you are also being sanctified. So the saints at Colossae are those who have been called out, set apart from the world, but they are also at Colossae. They have been called out from the world, but they are also in the world. Well, the saints, this, this phrase, rather, the saints at Colossae, it indicates the dual citizenship of the Christian. One commentator writes, the Christian lives in two different orders of reality at the same time. Here we are called to live as alien residents. The Colossian Christian's temporary citizenship was in the Roman province of Phrygia in Asia Minor. But their eternal citizenship is with Christ in heaven. Christ, uh, Paul, rather, in this simple greeting, he is reminding uh, them of their dual citizenship, which serves also to remind them of the way in which they are to conduct themselves in this fallen world. They are in the world, but rather than identifying with the world, they find their true and eternal identity and citizenship with Christ in heaven. Don't identify yourselves in the way that the world identifies themselves. There are all kinds of people who are associating their identity, who they are, with pronouns that they put at the end of an email, with their sexual proclivities, with all kinds of other things. I'm a goth. Well, that used to be something. Back in the 80s, it was, I was a, I'm a valley girl. Well, I didn't say that. My sister did. <laughs> that was an identity. People pick up identities, and they put them on, and then they cast them aside. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, and it does not change. It doesn't falter. In Christ is who you are. That brings us to the final, the third and final point of the sermon, grace and peace. 
Every single Lord's Day, we begin our morning service with what has traditionally been called the apostolic salutation. We used, to, we used to call it that in our order of worship. And several years back, I changed it because I think people, well, if they read the order of worship, they would look at what is an apostolic salutation? I don't understand what that means. So we refer to it now as God's word of greeting. All of Paul's letters contain an apostolic salutation, salutation and they are all very similar. A, a number of his letters, most of his letters, in fact, have an identical salutation to one another. For instance, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard that this morning. You hear it every morning here at Mid-Cities. Most Reformed Presbyterian churches and, and many other churches outside of our tradition, they use that apostolic greeting to start the worship service. That greeting is found, that salutation is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. It's found in 1 Corinthians, it's found in 2 Corinthians, it's found in Galatians, and in Ephesians. And in most of Paul's other letters, that identical salutation is to be found. Here, in Colossians, there is an exception to what is normal. Here we have a somewhat abbreviated version of the same salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. I think it's notable, I think there's, it's significant. Why didn't... Why didn't Paul go on to say, and our Lord Jesus Christ, as he does so, other, so many other places. In fact, there's some, some manuscripts. Um, there are many, many manuscripts of the letter to the Colossians. Some of them have that added. Most uh, textual critics, those who understand the differences between texts, they believe that what is original was the shorter version. It would have made sense to add uh, the language of Jesus Christ later um, rather than to take it away later. G.K. Beale in his, writes in his commentary, the reason why only God our Father is mentioned and not also the Lord Jesus Christ, which follows in most of Paul's other epistles, is that the double mention of brotherhood in these two verses has invoked the father-child side of this relationship and caused Paul to focus only on it. What's Beale saying there? Well, he's He's referring to the fact that Paul has already mentioned Timothy, our brother, in verse 1. And then he says to the faithful brothers in verse 2. And so Paul is emphasizing the fact that our brotherhood with one another is the result of having God as our father. If you don't have God as your father, then you cannot be my brother or my sister. If I don't have God as my father, I can't be your brother or sister. The reason why Paul can refer uh, to God the Father and God the Father alone is because we are brothers in Jesus Christ. So Paul could have simply said, greetings in the name of God our Father, which would have been completely acceptable. But he adds to that. He adds to that, this idea of grace. He wants to front load uh, to this and his other letters, God's grace. And so he, he says that there, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Colossians also ends with the phrase, grace be to you. And once again, Beale writes that grace to you begins the epistle and grace be with you concludes the epistle. And it points to a highlighting of God's grace as a major theme of this book. And it comes up again and again in Paul's letter. Paul is an apostle by the will of God. But they, the Colossians, all have salvation in Jesus Christ by the grace of God, which is, of course, according to the will of God. The grace of God unites us to Jesus Christ. This grace of God also brings peace to us with God. Peace with God comes through reconciliation. 
which comes only by being united to Jesus Christ. Paul elaborates on the reconciliation we have with God in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says in verse uh, verse 18, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he continues in verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. Our trespasses alienated us from God. Our trespasses made us enemies of God. The truth is, before we knew Christ, we hated God. But God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, that is, through Christ's crucifixion. The reason that God doesn't count our trespasses against us is because they were placed on Jesus. And he was punished for us in our place on the cross. It is because of this that we have peace with God. And Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, he wants to remind his readers of this. Paul's conversion, Paul's apostleship, his being transformed from someone who hated Christ and his church was completely because of God's sovereign grace at work in his life. And your conversion and my conversion, they too are the result of that same sovereign grace. Without God's grace given to you, you would not have peace with God. Because of God's sovereign grace, you do have peace with God. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.